Hi, I'm Cecilia Cancellaro, the senior editor for U.S. and Latin American history here at Cambridge University Press. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Ariella Gross to our podcast. Ariella is the co-author with Alejandro de la Fuente of Becoming Free, Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, which was published about six weeks ago. One recent review said the book radically reorients our perspective on blackness and slavery in the Americas. This very original comparative study basically addresses the question, how did Africans become blacks in the Americas? And it does this by telling, in a very compelling way, the stories of enslaved and free people of color who used the law to claim freedom and citizenship. Alejandro de la Fuente, who wasn't able to join us today, is the Robert Woods Bliss Professor of Latin American History and Economics, Professor of African and African American Studies, and the Director of the Afro-Latin American Research Institute at Harvard University. He's the author of several books, and he's also the series editor here at Cambridge with George Reed Andrews of the fantastic Afro-Latin America series. Ariella Gross is the John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History and the co-director of the Center for Law, History, and Culture at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She's the author, most recently, of What Blood Won't Tell, A History of Race on Trial in America. Thanks so much for joining us, Ariella. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So um, this book has a very important question at its core, and it's one that still resonates today. And that question is, who qualifies for citizenship in the United States? And as I said in my intro, you explore that question by examining the efforts of free people of color who have used the law to claim their freedom and rights to citizenship. And one of the main claims you make in the process is that it's the law of freedom, not slavery, that is the litmus test by which blackness should be viewed in slave societies. And can you just explain a little bit what you mean by that? Absolutely. Um, and, and I don't for a moment mean to suggest that, of course, the, the systems of slavery and the ways in which enslaved people interact with the law every day aren't important. I've, I've written other books about that. But, um, but what we came to realize as we were doing the research for this project is that if we really wanted to understand the very different legal regimes of race that end up in, in these three places, that what really made the difference were the, the ways in which ordinary people are able to use the law to make claims for freedom, to become free, what the opportunities and possibilities of freedom were, and then the ways in which the law is regulating the lives of free people of color and their ability to become citizens of the society they lived in. And that that was really what drew the line between black and white because um, as opposed to the line between, uh, not only the line between slave and free, but also the line between black and white. Um, and, and so that's why we ended up really focusing on that question of freedom um, because that was the way to, to get at, um, as you said, who can be become a citizen. And the comparative approach is, is really so enlightening in this book. 
and you know, can you say a little bit about how you and Alejandro decided on that comparative approach, and and then once you decided on that approach, um, why did you choose these three places, Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, as the sites for this study? Um, are, are there particular things that we learn from these locations, um, or the comparisons between them? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll say for me, Personally, you know that my previous book, What Blood Won't Tell, which you mentioned, um, is one where I was really trying to trace in the United States um, the the creation of race through law, and um, that book for me raised comparative questions because I knew that the traditional comparison between the United States and Latin America was that Latin America is a place where race was fluid and you know multiple gradations of racial identity and and by contrast the US was supposedly just black and white from the start and what I learned writing that book was no the US actually um, was full of these middle grounds and that people um, who were in between black and white had their identities really contested and that's what I wrote about there and it made me want to go back to that comparison and say wait a minute um, what is the difference between the US and Latin America if that's not it and um, and so and, and Alejandro had been working on Cuban history, also looking at similar kinds of cases, places where uh, people of color making claims on the law, um, especially freedom claims. And, uh, and, and Latin American history is always implicitly comparative with the US. And so we started talking a quite a long time ago, <laughs> over 10 years ago, about doing uh, how to do this comparison. We ended up choosing these particular places because first, they have a lot of important similarities. All three become full plantation slave societies. Um, they all uh, they all have um, uh, you know very developed legal systems and yet but come from, three different legal traditions in the beginning, French, Spanish, and British. And so they gave us the opportunity to look at, well, what difference does the legal tradition make? Does this legal framework make? And yet, Fran uh, sorry, Louisiana is this really interesting hybrid that starts French, becomes Spanish, then becomes American. And, and so we could both look comparatively at different legal regimes, but also look at some of the, you know, interactions and changes over time, um, because these are places that had a relationship to one another as well. There were people coming from Havana to New Orleans. Um, there were, they were also changing, New Orleans is changing hands. And so it also gave us a chance to look at a kind of scope out and look transnationally. Um, and so you touched on this. The book looks at the ways that the law and legal practices in general worked to change society, but it also focuses on how the actions of ordinary people shaped the law, which is always, to me, just incredibly fascinating. And you illustrate how enslaved people staked their claims through whatever legal tools were available to them. 
Um, and um, there are some amazing stories in this book about that. Can you give us um, some examples from the book of some specific people and the ways they did this? Absolutely. So the first person I would tell you about, um, her name was Juana. Uh, she's one of the, the first stories we tell in the book because it's quite early. Um, she, in 1690, uh, uh, filed with a notary in Havana uh, a document um, that memorialized an agreement she made with her owner um, to purchase her own freedom uh, for the sum of 800 pesos. But she had already paid 500 pesos. And this was part of a, a, a common um, practice in the Spanish Empire, but especially in Cuba, um, known as coartación, where she is essentially buying herself on installments. Um, and that's something that happened across all of the places that we looked at, this ability to purchase oneself. But in Cuba, it's backed up by law. That, um, that uh contract was actually enforceable. It was um, it was filed with this Spanish official, the notary, and it's it's enforceable even if her master changes his mind. He still has to go through with it if she comes up with the other $300. And what was remarkable in her contract, this is certainly not in every contract, was that it also specified that she now owned five-eighths of herself. Um, so her labor was now five-eighths hers, and that meant she was due wages for that amount and it would be put towards her price. But that idea of kind of fractional ownership that you actually come to, to partially own yourself and that moves away from the notion that you're uh, fully enslaved, and in fact they contrast Cortado slaves who have who are in that position with entero or entire whole slaves. That was really a, a right and a um, a practice that enslaved people created for themselves. It was never it hadn't been written down anywhere, but they kept pushing that that practice. Another one that they developed that that hadn't been written down but eventually is codified in law was the practice of carrying paper, pedir papel, where someone like Juana could then go and find another owner so to pay the $300 and her and her master would have to pay, uh, would have to let her go to whoever came up with that money. It also gave the opportunity for a community of free people of color to kind of chip in and and um, make that purchase. So um, so she was somebody right who really is kind of taking the law into her own hands. That happens in the United States as well, although it's less backed up. Um, by the power of law. So there, there are sort of fewer tools, but the ones that there are, people make use of. One of the most um, common in a place like Virginia was to claim um, Indian ancestry as a basis for freedom, to say, you know, I have a, had a great-grandmother who was actually wrongfully enslaved because she was really Indian, and so I should be free. Um, and... 
So one of the cases we look at, a woman named Nanny Peggy makes a claim. She says, I'm descended from an Indian woman. Um, she goes into court. She brings people who testify, you know, both about like her long, straight black hair and um, the other ways that she behaved as an Indian. Um, and she wins over a jury. She takes her case all the way up the court system through several appeals. Um, and once a case like that was won, often that knowledge would travel through the community of people of color and other lawsuits would start to pop up in other counties saying, I'm descended from the same Indian foremother. And so you could really see how these communities could take these relatively narrow opportunities and widen them. The one thing I would point out, though, is that in order to claim that freedom, she had to disclaim blackness. And that was a key difference right, in a place like Virginia, that that freedom became tied to racial identity. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. So, so in talking about these stories and um, those two cases in particular, it makes me think about the process, the research process. And I'm a history editor, so it will come as no surprise that I'm always really fascinated by the research process behind every history book that I acquire and edit. Um, so what was this research process like? Um, and how long did it take? Were there particular challenges? And, and where did it take? Were you in sort of legal archives digging up these cases? And um, do many of them exist? So <laughs> the, the short answer is it took a long time um, and I'm almost embarrassed to say. I think I, I, I mentioned the figure 10 years and I would say that uh, we have in fact been working on this on and off for about a decade. Um, and, and of course, some of the work was uh, in areas we had already uh, you know, cases we had already collected before we came to the comparative project, but the scope of it was both temporally and geographically so much bigger than anything either of us had done before that it involved a lot of new archival work. Um, most of these, ca the cases are spread around archives in the three places, mostly collected in the state archives, um, most of these, um, but it, there's a variety of Louisiana, for example, there are, I spent a lot of time in Spanish colonial records because it was during the Spanish period in Louisiana that there are the greatest uh, number of freedom suits and freedom claims. I looked at notarial records there, um, also the French uh, superior court judicial records. So there are a few different collections. Um, the Library of Virginia, uh, which is the state archive there, has most of the Virginia cases. Um, Havana is a challenge, um, actually. I, uh, Alejandro, you know, did the work in the Cuban archives. Um, but uh, because of the uh, government there, you never know uh, exactly what you're going to get when you go to Havana or even if he would be allowed in the country at any given time. And so uh, one of the things that that is great is he has this incredible network um, there. And so if he w was not able to 
uh, get something he needed. He knows exactly who to call and send them to the archive in his stead because often he wouldn't be allowed um, himself. Um, but but there were also, I think, some some real surprises for us, especially for me in the earlier in the colonial period, which is not a period I knew as well. I was really struck in the Virginia, um, especially 17th century county records to see in that early period before important questions about slavery and race had been settled in Virginia law because they had no kind of legal precedence for slavery in Virginia in English law to see how much room there was for uh, free people of color um, as legal agents in the courts um, in a way that would not be true even in, by the early 18th century. So I was just really uh, surprised by some of the people I found um, uh, who had, some of whom had been written about a little bit, but some of whom I hadn't hadn't seen before. Um, a woman named Elizabeth Key, who uh, in 1647, she wins her freedom by claiming, I'm a Christian and I have a white father. That Those are two claims that wouldn't have gotten her anywhere in Havana already because slave status passes through the mother and baptism doesn't make you free. Um, but it wasn't settled yet in Virginia. And uh, she promises that she's going to go back to Britain with her white father, but instead uh, she marries her white attorney and stays in Virginia. So people like that were just surprising to find. Mm -hmm. On the other end, there were some kind of chilling things that I found in the Virginia archives towards the end of, of the antebellum period. Um, one historian had mentioned in, uh, in his book... Uh, Joshua Rothman had mentioned, and I had seen in the newspapers mention of um, what were known as not a Negro certificates, where uh, people of free people of color who were trying to evade the incredibly tough restrictions that were put on their movements and their daily lives in Virginia laws in the 1850s. Um, applied, petitioned the legislature to get a certificate that would say, I'm a free person of color, but not a Negro, in order to evade the laws. And so there, there were these mentions, but nobody had actually found any. I found um, uh, a number of them, uh, six or seven of them in the archives. And, and that was, I mean, those are really heart-rending um, documents. And the others that I I had never seen before, although other, uh, several historians have written about them, or petitions for re-enslavement, which again happened at the very end of the antebellum period when the legislature is just shutting down all possibility for free people of color to live in a state. And, and some people felt the only way that I can safely stay with my family in the state is to choose a, a, an owner and be re-enslaved. And those are very sad also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, the book is obviously a work of history, but um, one cannot deny the contemporary relevance. Obviously, the question of birthright citizenship, um, and in general, um, you know, the subject is quite timely as we continue as a country to struggle with the legacy of slavery. Um, what connections would you like to, to, to ask us to think about to the present day? So, uh, absolutely, all what, what you are suggesting, the, the question of, of citizenship ended up being really crucial because what we conclude is that that the real difference between uh, Cuba on the one hand and by 1860 Virginia and Louisiana on the other is that it's still possible in Cuba for a free man of color and I do say man in this case to be uh, to be part of public life, to participate in a militia, in a religious association, even to marry across the color line, um, and, and to be a rights-bearing subject of the Spanish empire. But in Virginia and Louisiana, free people of color are seeing their schools and their churches shut down. They can be prosecuted for marrying across the color line. They um, are, uh, there's a movement to move them from the states they're living in, from their homeland. Um, and, and so the possibility of citizenship is really being cut off. And in particular, that, that what was known as colonization, but was also talked about as removal, right? Deportation, this idea that, that free black and white people could never live side by side. I think, unfortunately, we really see echoes of that today. You know, when when our president says about congresswomen of color who are U.S. citizens, send them back. I think it's that same impulse that um, a person of color can't truly be a citizen. And I think that's that connection between whiteness and citizenship is the hardest to break and the one that we really need to break. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, that, might, that might answer the, the last question I was gonna ask you, which is, if there are one or two things you hope people will take away from this book, what, what would they be? Um, so I, I, yes, I think that would, that would be one of them, um, that, uh, that how, how durable in law that connection between citizenship and whiteness has been. I mean, one of the, we, we kind of end by saying, you know, we tried to show how crucial crucially important the, these communities of free people of color were to the possibility of citizenship and of claiming citizenship, um, but, uh, but also that the laws that regulated their lives kind of became a template for laws after the Civil War that limited um, the lives of the freed people and the, and the um, movement and migration of people of color um, since then. Um, I guess the other, the more hopeful kind of takeaway I, I sometimes um, think about when I'm on a good day, I think, you know, it is remarkable to see how much individuals and communities with so little resources, right, often people who, who were not literate themselves, 
who um, are are being held in bondage and have um, very little uh, recourse to um, institutions of uh, the state are nevertheless um, able to circulate knowledge to a remarkable degree, to find lawyers and other allies to help them and and navigate these institutions to insist that uh, the state recognize them, um, recognize their freedom, um, and emancipate their family members um, and recognize their communities. And so um, I, I am always struck by both sides of that of that equation. and um, and you know, occasionally there are these, um, these people that you just think it is amazing what they were able to do. Yeah, agreed. And thank you for giving voice to so many of them in this book because I, I find those stories incredibly um, moving and powerful um, and you've done a real service by, by putting them out there for all of us. Um, so thank you so much for, for talking with us today. Uh, it's been, as you know, my pleasure to get to work with you on this book, even for the short time that I've been here. Um, and I'm sorry that we missed Alejandro, but um, I, I wish you the best of luck on the rest of your tour for this book, which is going really well. Um, and who, for anyone who's listening, please try to, to, to get out to the bookstores that um, Ariella and Alejandro will be speaking at and other events that they're doing around the country. Thanks, Ariella. Thank you.